As I said in the last service, and I, you know, when you start to tell a story of memory, other memories will follow. And I'm reminded by this man's voice today of a black and white drawing about Yay Big at home with a beautiful wooden frame. And in that frame is a picture of a man who my mother says is very important to our family. I said, well, is he an uncle? Is he a cousin? No, he's, he's, he's somebody bigger than that. And it turns out uh, I have met that man in that picture, she told me, when I was about this big. I don't remember. But it was in New York City where my uncle had a radio station, and my father took us up from Philly to go to this radio station to meet this man who was a giant, my father said, a giant. And he was physically a giant, but he was also, as I learned later, a giant humanitarian, a giant human being who was a global citizen. That man was Paul Robeson, so thank you for reminding me of him. That picture needs a little dusting when I get home today. I thank you First Universalist for inviting me back. I think I moved to Minnesota uh, just a couple of years ago now, actually two to be precise, and within a few months of arriving my first time, I was asked by Justin to preach here. So this was where I got my preaching chops back after not preaching for a number of years. I was glad to come and do that here, and since then I have traversed the state from little hamlets like Hanska to preach, to uh, Rochester, to St. Paul, back here, to St. Cloud, and I'm wondering why I'm getting all these preaching gigs. I'm like, wow. This is pretty amazing. My partner, Ashley Horan, also does a lot of preaching. But I realize I fit a certain little niche here, up here in Minnesota. <laughs> and I don't know why you're laughing, but it is true <laughs> that I am the only African-American, dreadlock, uh, gay person, UU minister for 20-some years in the five, six-state region. <laughs> So um, I guess I'll be busy for some time, and I, I thank all of these congregations for teaching me so much about this state and about its culture. I learn a lot about it at work at the U as well. I've, I've, my language has improved. I am more polite than being a typical East Coast jerk. I, I say, yeah, yeah, all the time at home now, and I do it for real. <laughs> I also, um, when I'm in a hurry, I go, sure, 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 sure. That's a new one. And um, if uh, my little 16-month-old toddler does something, I go, oh, for cuet. <laughs> so I, I've gotten good. You know, I, I got a long way to go. I still say water instead of wh whatever you say. <laughs> but I'm, I'm enjoying my time here in Minnesota, and I thank First Universalist for giving me a chance to get my chops back. Um, now, uh, authority, as we heard a little bit about from my favorite uh, Unitarian educator, and that's John Luther Adams in our reading today, authority is complicated. And it's complicated in the free church of which we are a part of. It's also challenging. 
often our authority is questioned and critiqued. Some of us have seen our authority denied to us for various reasons, and others have a hard time even claiming the authority that they have been afforded. Now, while we seek authority in relationships with children, we know better with our partners to try to have too much authority, amen? Partners and people, yes, okay. Now, one of the things that um, I know about in our Unitarian Universalist Association, having been a minister in this association for 20-some years, authority is carefully sought after, despite what anyone will tell you. And it's often debated, and it's obfuscated, it's hidden, and it's often measured, particularly amongst ministers. Authority. It's complicated for Unitarian Universalists. From Michael Servetus in Spain to Jack Mendelssohn in Boston, we have historically challenged authority with intellect, reason, curiosity, facts, science, and my favorite, righteous indignation. Much of how we learn our Unitarian Universalist history, as you new members may know and come to know, has been through the inspiration of individuals and events that illuminate, that highlight our oppositional relationship with some form of authority. Be it the authority of Calvin's church in Geneva, or the authority of George Wallace's state in Alabama. We resist authority. We Unitarians and Universalists took aim, straight aim, at the doctrine of hell and Trinitarianism. We threw off the Nicene and Chalcedonian creeds and encumbrances that they provided and were free then to seek new obstacles to fight against as we went on in the creation of this free faith. Our radical reformation, of which we are a part of, challenged the centrality of Christ and the manifestations of the human Christ. We debated the authority of theism. We yielded to the mystical transcendentalism. We embraced religious and secular humanism, and we continue to reconfigure and to construct new theologies and philosophies that provide us with individual and collective meaning and purpose. Now, we Unitarians and Universalists became and can become very prickly when somebody tries to exert some kind of authority over us. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? <laughs> that power over thing? If we were now, let's imagine this whole congregation, imagine this is a congregation of two-year-olds right now. Not only would no one be in their seats, but they would also come with the affirmation or the refrain during the hymn of, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> now, 
that may be the case. And those of us who have children and who are parents know that by the time the kids are two or three years old, they've learned the most important two words in the English language. No and why. <laughs> I have a 16-year-old and a 17-month-old who both yesterday did those things. <laughs> Little Aspen says, no, I am not getting in that car in 17-month-old speak without Elmo. No, Elmo. We stood there for some time on the sidewalk. It wasn't pretty. <laughs> My 16-year-old says, why can't I go to this bonfire on the lake? Why? I relented. She's gone. <laughs> now, we know that those are the most important words in the English language. And even at this young age, my kids know, and your kids will know, and your nieces and nephews and grandkids know. And we want them to ask these questions. We want them to resist authority, not just ours, but we want them to ask questions and to think critically so that they can be citizens with great intention of self and have the agency they need to live in this world and stand up for what they believe in. Now, while toddlers and teenagers typically hear from us, no, because I said so, they learn to question authority effectively if we give them an opportunity to, if we're engaged in the development of their agency. Now, I still remember my theological you're not the boss of me moment. It was when I was in college and I went to my first Unitarian Universalist uh, worship service at Arlington Street in Boston. And it was during that service that I realized, having been raised a Jehovah's Witness, where beliefs were imposed upon me from above, and I was always somehow doing something wrong and oppositional to the faith, here in this free church, I was so grateful to be among people that deeply believed in my own, my humanity and the humanity of those around us. My conviction, my personal conviction of unconditional love for humanity was in sync with this new community I had found, filled with compassionate individuals seeking to live life responsibly, guided by principles that facilitated the potentiality of the human experience. I was home. Now, it was a narrative of freedom and resistance that attracted me to this faith some 25 years ago. I grew up as an adult in this faith. I have attended many GAs. I've got the buttons to prove it. I have participated in task force, local, national, region, served churches, been a DRE, been on committees, facilitated workshops, and preached in my preaching days about narrow-mindedness and the liminality that we live in in this country. I have been there and done that. Yet as I have matured and as we all mature, sometimes the passions and the heroes of our young adult life 
start to be seen in less vibrant colors. Sometimes they even fade. Our chants that we shouted in the streets many, many years ago become faint and harder to hear sometimes. Our anti-authoritarian postures and resistance in, uh, are starting to sort of fade in our memories. We're not standing as strong in that direction of resistance. Because, after all, postmodernism laid to rest the authority of the meta-narrative that we thought and fought and fought so hard against. The academy, the academy has dismissed the authority of the enlightenment and modernism. Our own binary interrogation of gender and sexuality and authority has yielded to the assertion of critical theory. Our rebellion against our religious past seemed to shrink in magnitude as we tell the same stories over and over again about a priest that bogged us in 1968. Yes, we all had that button resisting authority. Anybody know what a button I'm talking about? It's either a button, a bumper sticker, or a t-shirt. I know you had it. It says, question? How many still had a t-shirt? Right there, thank you. It might be up here right now, right? It's okay, it's all right, it's okay. I got one that's up here too, it's a midriff now. But it's an important thing to remember that we had because my question to you friends today is, what do you do after you've questioned authority? What did you do after you questioned authority? What questions about authority should we be posing to our youthful 55-year-old Unitarian Universalist Association, a movement with 250,000 souls? How can we use our history and help it us think outside the boxes that currently confine us? Now, a friend, Dr. Victoria, the Reverend Doctor, you know, everyone likes that when they're the doctor, they have to have the Reverend Doctor. Reverend Doctor Victoria Weinstein, a colleague of ours, says that, and I want you to hear this quote, it's very important. We have thus far in our post-merger existence as Unitarian Universalists treated our theological legacy with white gloves as fragile, faded, archival material to be handled as lightly as possible and then filed respectfully away in an attic or basement filing cabinet or as historical curiosities to be peered at, to be peered at over the top of our spectacles, smiled at fondly over and left in the church library to be studied by the few you use who ask for a key to the lock stacks. What can we learn about our tradition through the lens of critical theory? Now I wonder, have we really challenged authority as much as we say we did? Or, and I mean really, we're the, the farthest left end of the Protestant Reformation. Or have we really been satiated by the comfort of a new authority, the authority of insularity, 
the authority of in-jokes, the authority of insiderness. What can be repurposed from those dusty stacks of old resistance to unlock and unstick us and energize our movement beyond 250,000 souls? Now, I remember um, an unchurched friend of mine in Boston when I was in college. I said, look, dude, you know, if you want to go to church, you want to get back into some kind of spiritual thing, I recommend you go to my church, Arlington Street Church. Having been a Jehovah's Witness, I was excellent at getting people to go to church. <laughs> and I could sell you a watchtower or an awake like that. That's why I got kicked out. Actually, I spent a lot of money on candy. So... Um, so this unchurched friend of mine finally decided to visit a UU church. And I said, you're going to love it. The people are great. They're progressive like us. You know, we're dealing with all these issues here in the 70s. And I think you'll really dig it, you know. And that's how we talked back then. I think you'll really dig it. And, and he went and he came back and he said that he, after return, he said he would have a hard time joining a community that had such an authoritarian Protestant presentation. <laughs> I said, well, excuse me, did you go to King's Chapel down there in Beacon Hill or did you go to Arlington Street in Coffee Square? He says, no, I went to Arlington Street. He says, it's just the pews all wooden facing forward. The preacher up top. And I realized, too, that he was right. We do have in many of our churches an environmental presentation problem. Old wood and pews facing forward, our form of governance derives from the Cambridge platform and the Puritans, as old as 350 years old, um, and our ways of training and calling ministers, our Protestant, our liturgical tradition is unmistakably Protestant, our associational structure, denominational staff structure, and our understanding of authority and responsibility have a specific relationship with the Protestant traditions more than any of the other world religions that we claim we are connected and respectful of and, and incorporate in our lives. So friends, our challenge today is not to, not to the explicit authority of religious dogma. That's not our challenge. That's not our presentation issue anymore. But the implicit authority challenge that we have is of cultural hegemony. That's our issue. Hegemony that is apparent, apparent in how our churches are perceived, presented, and function. Now, in simple terms, hegemony refers to the way in which the powerful shape an organization or a society's norms, values, and behavior, and how that particular shaping that becomes accepted as the norm, as default, as a given. That is, people tend to regard the way we currently do things in our churches as the only way to run and do things. Now, one consequence of cultural hegemony is that when people think about changing things, they think about changing it only within the context of existing parameters. I'll give you a silly example of that. I remember when I got my first Barbie doll in 1960-whatever, um, all the Barbie dolls, Midge, Barbie, Ken, all of them, 
was it Midge? Yeah, Midge. They were all white. And then they came out with the black Barbie, like 1972, like Julia. Okay, we're going to be really cool now. Um, and they just painted the Barbie, the white Barbie, black. So she didn't have a nose that was black. She didn't have any lips that were black. So it was hegemony still, but within the context of, 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 of a white hegemony. So one consequence of this is that we never, particularly Unitarian Universalists, see ourselves in a larger context. Rarely do members participating in the culture think about making the changes because it suits them the way things are. And this hegemonic authority shows up in the behavior of ministers and congregation members, particularly when someone represents or shows up who is from an identity or construct that is outside the norm of that community. Now, I am a very mischievous person. I will admit that. I've always been that way. It's, it's a terrible problem. I'm working on it. <laughs> I go to meetings. <laughs> but I, I can't count the number of times that I've gone to a UU church. And I've been to UU churches all over this country for many years. And I can't count the number of times that either I'm preaching or somebody comes up to me after service or I'm just in the pew as a person, just, you know, vibing on the service. And someone comes up to me and says, do you know um, Jim Johnson? He's black, too. <laughs> Jim Johnson. No, I can't think that I do. No, no. Or did you see that play, Ma Rainey's, uh, Ma Rainey, that August Wilson play? You know, he's a famous black playwright. He's writing a play every decade about the black experience. This actually, somebody said this to me. Really? I had to look into that. I went to a concert last week. Beautiful music, spiritual music, gospel music. It was very enlightening. Now, I cannot tell you how many times this has happened to me. And I stand there politely in my robe or in my little suit or whatever it is and say, really? That is fascinating. And then, without missing a beat, I usually say, Do you, are you familiar with T.S. Eliot? <laughs> you know, I, I read Shakespeare. <laughs> I have eaten your food. <laughs> I have been to Europe on many occasions and have met your relatives. I'm very familiar with white culture. I got a degree in white culture. Now I will do this. If they do that, I will do this. And then they, those who've said what they've said, will look at me as if I'm from another planet. I get this look a lot. And then we usually shake hands and say goodbye. <laughs> now, obviously, uh, this is a little fun on my part, but it's really important to understand this because, you know, usually this puzzled look comes over people's faces because it's understandable that white people don't have a culture in the same way that men don't have a gender. Okay? And 
straight people don't have a sexual orientation. It's the same kind of thinking that cultural hegemony creates this. I, I, back in the 90s, when I was in Meadville Lombard Seminary in Chicago, becoming, planning to become a UU minister, so excited, so thrilled about the potential of my ministry until I found out then in the mid-90s that it would be unlikely that a black gay woman would be called to any church in the search process because it had not happened. So I realized that and started to think, here I am, spend all this money becoming a UU minister, but there's no church going to pay back my loans. <laughs> so I started a church. I started a church in Chicago to serve the LGBTQ African-American community and our families and friends, and it was a great success for 10 years. We had a clinic, a daycare, an outreach program, I mean, just everything you can name we had. But under the breath of my colleagues, under their breath, and sometimes to my face, there were comments made like, why not take all these black gay people that are down there at Church of the Open Door on the South Side and spread them out over First Unitarian, Second Unitarian, and Third Unitarian so we can have more multicultural churches. People actually said that to my face on a few occasions. They want to integrate their churches with my bodies. And I said to these friends of mine that that would not be possible because white Anglo hegemony, cultural appropriation, reductionist theories about my identity, simplistic treatments of my truth and my cultural authority would muffle me to silence. Yet Unitarian Universalists continue to ask, and they've asked for 50 years, <coughs> 50 years the same questions, which is how can we become more multicultural? How can we attract more people of color to our congregations? How, when will I be, this is what I like, when will I be able to sit next to a black person in church and turn to greet them with my welcoming white, glad you're here, your smile? You know, that's real. And these are good questions for some communities, but Let's also ask what do members of different cultural communities have to give up? What do they lose when they come to a largely white congregation? Since Unitarian Universalist congregations are 99.9% .9 white and Anglo, I'd like to propose to my good friends in Boston at the UUA an idea that we stop trying, stop belittling and berating white congregations for not being diverse and stop and start to accept these churches as ethnic churches because that's what they are. And there's nothing wrong with being ethnically European. There's nothing wrong with being white. There's nothing shameful about your Western European culture. For me, having followed the dictates of my own conscience and the the leadings of the spirit that simultaneously meant that I had to find a community of faith that was going to support me spiritually and intellectually, I also had to find a culture and a community that would support me and my ancestors. I found a place that speaks to my religious language, but it only speaks it with European authority. So when I come here, I speak with European authority because I'm bilingual. 
that's no joke. I code switch like anyone else. Now, hear me when I say that I love every Unitarian church I've ever been in, even the ones that are hard to love. Unitarians are my people. You are my people. I am your people. But my people are also the ones who would like to sing Harvest for the World by the Isley Brothers, which is a beautiful song that should be in our hymnal. My people are also the ones that like to talk back to the minister during the service. My people are also the ones that hang bottle trees outside of the house for the ancestors and the spirits from down south to get caught up in those trees so they could keep us safe at home. My people are also the ones who want to get married in church and want to jump the broom, a memory that, of our freedom after slavery. My people are also the ones that want to have a New Year's Eve watch night at church until midnight where we eat Hoppin' John and cornbread and fried fish and greens as we swim through the new year. Instead of having me and other people of color lose ourselves in the translation of European ethnic churches that ask us to present our most sanitized and assimilated selves, why not start ethnic UU churches to break the cycle of hegemonic authority that keeps us as a community isolated, small, insular, and stuck? Why not start ethnic churches throughout this country so people of color and others do not have to make such significant sacrifices and have these significant cultural and psychological losses being in a church where they are not able to express their ethnic pride and their own connection to identity. Now, I say this because as when I was in Chicago, I was teaching clinical pastoral education in a large uh, metropolitan hospital where we had many students from the Swedish Covenant Church. And the Swedish Covenant Church is connected to North Park Seminary and North Park University. They are on the north side of Chicago. And they were at 90,000 members nationwide about 15 years ago. And they confronted their hegemony one day um, from the top, from the leadership. And I started to hang around these Swedish covenants just to learn more about them. Because we, as you use, don't spend enough time with everybody else. We really need to spend some time with some other people. And when I started hanging around with them, I saw that they had an issue of cultural hegemony that they wanted to challenge. So they took the word Swedish out. They said, we're just a covenant church because that was the core understanding of their moderate, sort of mainline Christianity. Now, what they did was they met people where they were in their cultural context instead of asking them to abandon it. Thus, they started many ethnic covenant churches throughout the U.S. And with much success, they've gone from 90,000 to 230,000 members in about a span of a dozen years. And what they did was they started with the context that there are some disaffected people of color ministers out here. Let's bring them together, see if we have some agreement on theology, and we will build a church in your community for you to do the ministry. 
Not just sitting up next to them in the Swedish Covenant Church. No, we're going to be in partnership. Now, we look around at the rest of the denominations, the Methodists, when they have their meeting, it is a rainbow of Methodists. The Black Methodist Church, United Methodists, it's amazing to see their um, uh, big general assemblies. The Black churches, the Native American churches, the Latino churches, the Asian churches, the European American churches, all coming together in union as one strong, strong union. Same with Lutheran. I've been to five black Lutheran churches since I've been here. I've been to one Norwegian speaking Lutheran church here in Minneapolis. I have seen every kind of stripe of Catholic as we can see around the world. Presbyterians, everybody else has figured out that we need ethnic churches with our message in every other place, but not the Unitarian Universalists. Why? We just want to sit next to people of color? What's the reason? Think about it. After the Civil War, ended in 1865, emancipated Africans in America left the churches of their white owners because they went to church with them before, while they were slaves and formed their own church that was going to sustain their identity and culture and continue their fight for freedom going forward. Ethnic UU churches would allow for specific cultural perspectives to develop and be heard. Imagine the new theological voices like we're going to hear at General Assembly this year from Black Lives You Use. Imagine the theological discernment, the intellectual complexity of writings and perspectives with a variety of people of color exploring Unitarian Universalism anew. Imagine ethnic UU churches could provide a connection to an intellectual and emotional depth that would be new to create new lexicons, new rituals, new worship styles, new liturgies. Imagine the affirmation and power UU principles framed in specific cultural contexts would have. Ethnic UU churches could help resist the marginalization and tokenism that so many of us feel in ethnic European churches. It would give rise to unique expression. Ethnic UU churches. Now, this is all fantasy that I'm just roaming around the state talking about. But they could also be incubators. Incubators that allowed potentially fragile populations to establish themselves and grow and to develop. Now, remember, friends, that historically, monocultural churches like German Lutherans. Anybody know what I'm talking about? German Lutherans. English Baptists, Scottish Presbyterians, British Anglicans, and others established themselves in the colonial American system. These monocultural churches became incubators for those who came to these shores seeking freedom, seeking freedom, which included the freedom to add their past cultural values from Scotland, from Germany, from England, into the new American future. Now I just read, like I said, I talked about the Norwegian churches and others that are here, but can you imagine our banner parade at GA? Can you imagine the power that that would have? Our message in all kinds of color, in, with integrity and clarity about who they are and whose they are. As I paint this little picture, I envision that this congregation would play a particularly unique role, a particularly unique role 
As I pull up and I see Black Lives Matter outside, every time I drive down here, I'm always like smile because I came from a church in Chicago, a UU church that will be unnamed, that put Black Lives Matter outside and took it down when the police in the neighborhood said that offended them. But you're not taking your sign down. You all have moved to a whole nother level. This church, this church, this church here, you're doing the work of racial justice by examining yourselves. That's the dream that most black people have, that white people get together and deal with this issue on their own without us sitting next to you to hear it. You are uniquely situated to engage in relationship with these new imaginary people of color UU churches because you're doing the hard work of educating yourselves and understanding the challenges of uprooting white supremacy in your own midst. The potential emergence of people of color churches should not stop you ever, First Universalist, from doing this work. You are doing this work because you desire to be better people. Your work to become better white people, to become better morally grounded people in our society is important so that you can demonstrate to people like me and all of those people of color, ethnic UU churches that don't exist yet, that you are not afraid to confront your own issues without us having, as I said, to sit next to you in a room to hear it and that you are also able to work on your own stuff to elevate us all together. Let us be so bold, friends, to create a new polycentric authority in our denomination, in our association, with multiple centers, with multiple ethnic churches, and multiple modes of worship for Unitarian Universalists to grow and flourish in the coming generations. I am committed to this faith. I'm going to die a Unitarian Universalist, but I'll be damned if I'm going to give up my own culture and be something that I'm not, or ask others and bring them here to be something that they're not. We must make room for new models for church, for our denomination to grow, and to be more parallel with the rest of the country in terms of the diversity within a denomination. Just imagine where we might go and who we might be come as a movement. <laughs>